Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Make Walters part of your Saturday as employee number 11 gets his number retired. Walters is a great place to be at before, during, and after the game. Walk on over to Walters for Game 2 of the Stanley Cup Finals. Puck drops at 8 p.m. on Saturday night. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hernandez digs in for the right side. Hand kicks, delivers the pitch. Swing and a miss. Struck him out with a slider. And game one here at Nationals Park comes to a conclusion. Brad Hand walks a tightrope, puts the tie runs on, and gets the final out, striking out Cesar Hernandez. The 1-1 from Ciszek. Swinging a soft line, drive up the middle. It's through for a base hit. There was a collision. Now Schwarber heads home. Heading for the plate also is the runner, Hoskins. He'll be tagged out, but will there be obstruction? Because Garcia and Hoskins got tangled up. They're going to score the run. So Garcia is going to be called for obstruction and two runs score. As soon as the batter hit the ball, Hoskins and Garcia collided. And so the third base coach, Wathen, waved Hoskins around. And he is granted home plate due to obstruction call. It's a two-run single and an 8-6 Phillies lead. Davey Martinez wants an explanation. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, June 18th, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We are taping this installment of the Nats Chat podcast late night on Friday night, hours away from the Nats on Saturday afternoon, retiring Ryan Zimmerman's number 11 prior to game four of a five-game series against the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park. And we're Coming to you off a long, and I mean long, day of baseball at Nationals Park on Friday. A doubleheader that resulted in a doubleheader sweep of the Nats by the Phillies. Game one on Friday afternoon, a 5-3 loss. Game two on Friday night, an 8-7-10 inning loss. Long day, like I said, wild day as well. But ultimately, another losing day for the Nats, who now have lost 11 consecutive games to the Phillies. That is the longest active winning streak for any major league team against another major league team. The Phillies' current 11-game winning streak against the Nats. Nats now down to a National League worst, 23-45 and on the year, seven consecutive losses overall. Mark, what a day on Friday at Nationals Park, and what a day in a variety of ways. Oh my, Al. This was uh, something as, I mean, I don't even remember what happened in the first game. Let's focus on the second game for now, because Both of these teams seemingly did everything in their power to try to lose it late. There were some of the most egregious mistakes you'll ever see. Defense, questionable decision-making in a lot of ways, bad relief pitching. I mean, you name it. I know the Phillies are a contending team, but they have so many issues, especially in these games. And talking to their writers who cover their team, this happens to them like every other night that they're involved in one of these games. Sometimes they win them, sometimes they lose them. The Nats, unfortunately, they pretty much lose these games when they get into them. And the lack of execution, the lack of making the right decisions at critical moments, it really stands out. And look, it's the sign of a bad team. The Nationals are a bad team. I think we can all acknowledge that. But boy, is it difficult to watch and frustrating. And it just it felt like even though they held the lead, it felt like you're just waiting for when is it going to go wrong? Because right now they will find a way to make it go wrong and lose a game. Yeah. And that certainly happened 
really in game two uh, with this doubleheader. It happened to a degree, I suppose, in game one. So we'll start with the controversy from the doubleheader. So game two, the 8-7-10 inning loss. The Nats in this game blew a 5-3 eighth inning lead, but tied the game in the bottom of the ninth on one of the most egregious errors that you'll ever see, a throwing error by Philly shortstop D.D. Gregorius of a grounder from the bat of Nelson Cruz. Swinging a ground ball towards short. Gregorius charges it, has it. He'll throw the run, a bad throw. Gets by Hoskins, goes out of play into the camera well. The game should have been over. There were two outs in the inning. Instead, Cruz ends up reaching base via error. The Nats score. The game-tying run were knotted at six. Then comes the top of the 10th inning. And the Nats shortstop, Luis Garcia, ends up getting called for what I think was a wacko obstruction call. But you talked to the uh, crew chief on the umpiring crew, so we'll get to that momentarily. But just to set up what happened here. So the Phillies ended up scoring two runs in the top of the 10th. Runners on second and third, one out game tied at six. JT Real Muto hits a single into center field past a diving Luis Garcia. Uh, The runner on third, Kyle Schwarber, easily scored. The runner on second, Reese Hoskins, collided with Garcia as Garcia was making his diving attempt at the Real Muto single. If you watch the replay, Garcia's glove falls off as he collides with Hoskins. This is really a weird deal. Hoskins on the play ended up being out by a mile at home plate, but Garcia was soon called for obstruction with the idea being that he obstructed Hoskins in the baseline between second and third, and Hoskins was awarded home plate. Davey Martinez was furious, ended up getting ejected by the crew chief, Dan Iasonia, who just happened to be the second base umpire for the game. If he's against obstruction, he's awarded third base, he's not awarded home. After he touches third base and he rounds the base, to me, it's fair game. He got thrown up at 40 feet. <laughs> I don't know what Luis Garcia was supposed to do. You spoke to Ayasonia after the game. What was his justification for this? All right. So there's a lot to unpack here. And before we get started, I want to say when we get to the end of this, I have something else about that whole at bat that I really want to get to and why it probably never should have even come to what it did. So don't let me forget about that. For those who don't know what the obstruction rule is, it's obstruction by a fielder if the fielder impedes the runner progressing from one base to the other, provided that the fielder is not either in possession of the ball or he's not in the act of fielding the ball. And that's the key phrase there, not in the act of fielding the ball. What Dan Isonia said to me as the pool reporter for this game was, That in that instance, we felt like the fielder had already attempted to make a play on the ball, and then the contact occurred. Once he does that, he's got to vacate. He's got to get out of the way of the runner. So once he tries to field the ball, once we feel like he's done that, it's his job to get out of the way of the runner. I know it was very close when that happened, and it's a judgment call. It's a very close judgment call. So what he's essentially saying is that Garcia had his opportunity to field the ball, didn't get it, and then obstructed Hoskins from advancing. To me, and I've looked at it a few times, it seems like the ball hasn't even reached him at the, you know when the contact is made. It also seems to me like Hoskins was trying to initiate contact, and if you saw the third base coach's reaction, it almost felt like they were, knew they were trying to do that and trying to get the call made uh, on their behalf. I would also say, off the bat, I didn't think he was really going to make the play. Like I thought it was going to be a single up the middle. I'm not sure if he even was going to make the play at all, but I don't believe that the obstruction occurred after the ball had already passed him or after he already had the opportunity. It felt like he was he collided with him in the act of trying to dive for a ball that he may or may not have gotten to. So there's all that. The second part of the equation is this. Even when they call the obstruction and the first runner scores, they could have held Hoskins at third base. And what they determine instead, and this is a judgment call as well, and Iasonia says... Once you have obstruction, you're going to award the runner whatever you felt he would have had, whatever base he would have reached had the obstruction not occurred. And he felt like even though Hoskins was thrown out by a mile, that he's saying he was thrown out by a mile because he was impeded and that slowed him down, that if not for the obstruction, he would have scored on the play. And in a lot of ways, I think that's the more egregious mistake here. I'm not convinced he was going to score on that play. Maybe he would have, maybe he wouldn't have not. But I didn't think it was obvious he was going to score. And I think that's actually a worse call than the obstruction call. Really? See, I I didn't have that much of a problem with assuming he would have scored from second. But I can't get over 
that it wasn't determined that Garcia was in the process of trying to feel the ball when he collided with Hoskins. I find that so odd. Garcia is making a diving attempt at the ball. Forget about whether he would have gotten to it or not. I don't think he would have, okay? We've seen a lot of balls like that get past him and also the guy he replaced, Alcides Escobar. But he's trying to make a play on the ball. He's not, he's not obstructing Hoskins. I mean, come on. And I think what's also interesting is this, and, and Iasonia said this to you, the Nats wanted runner interference on the play. That shows you how borderline this was, that you could actually make the case that Hoskins was guilty of an impropriety, not Luis Garcia. So I just, I feel like this was kind of like over-umpiring to call that in that spot. It it was a weird play, I'll grant you that. And you don't often see a fielder collide with a runner. But I I don't know. I just, I have a hard time seeing this from Ayasonia's perspective that Garcia did anything wrong. I don't know what else Garcia was supposed to do on that play. Yeah, I agree. And I even tried to ask him, like, what could he have done after attempting to field the ball to avoid the obstruction? And he says, well, I can't get into his head. It's just it's a very difficult close play. I don't really believe anybody's at fault with it. It's just a really close play. And our job is to rule, and we ruled it obstruction. To me, and I can't say I'm an expert on this, but I would think that the call is just to let it go. Like, is that allowed? That to say that, yeah, there was a collision there, but I don't think Garcia was impeded from making the play. I don't think he was going to make it anyways. I also don't think he could have done anything to get out of the way of the runner. I think Hoskins may have tried to initiate it as well. And I think Hoskins would have made it to, it should have been a single and the runner on third. My opinion is if if you take that all out of it, what would have just happened on the play? I think it would have been a base hit, one run scores, Hoskins goes to third. And instead they added an obstruction to it that I don't think there was anything Garcia could have done to prevent it from happening. I don't think that was a good call at all. And this obviously is not the first time the Nats have been jobbed by something like this, a rule along these lines. So is that what you were talking about? Uh, Hoskins being awarded home? That was a thing you didn't want to forget? No. So the at bat in the first place. And here's where I actually think it never should have happened. The Phillies, there's so many weird things happen in this game. A few innings earlier, the Phillies send up Bryce Harper to pinch hit for Odubel Herrera. Okay. Harper doubles. That was the crazy at bat where he thought he walked and then he ends up doubling in two runs. Bryce Harper can't play the field right now. He's got a torn ligament in his elbow. He essentially is going to need Tommy John surgery after the season. So he can only DH. So by doing that, he cannot now come into the game. And what that meant is that the Phillies had to now pull their DH, Kyle Schwarber, put him in left field, and now their pitcher is batting in the spot that Harper was hitting, the number five spot in the order. So let's go all the way to the 10th inning now. And you have the automatic runner on, then you have Hoskins draws the walk, then you have Castellanos grounds out, and now here comes Real Muto with one out and runners on second and third. Real Muto's the batter. In the on-deck circle is the pitcher's spot, Alvarado. And to me, the play there is to intentionally walk Real Muto and force the Phillies to pinch hit for their only remaining decent reliever, Alvarado, to try to take the lead and then have to go to, I believe they only had one guy left in the bullpen they could have gone to, uh, and it was the rookie who made his major league debut, Kelly. I think it's Michael Kelly, who made his major league debut the night before. And I asked Davey about it afterwards if he considered it. He said he thought about it. They felt like Real Muto, the way he's going right now, there was a good chance of him hitting a ground ball they would either get the runner out of the plate or hold the runner and throw him out, and then they would force uh, the Phillies to now pinch hit anyways and, and take their chances with the pinch hitter after that. To me, I've seen JT Real Muto for many years. The guy's a professional hitter. In that situation, second and third game on the line, he's going to find a way to get the runner home, and he did. By the way, yeah, it was a ground ball, but it was right up the middle, and it was probably going to get through. So I would rather have them never pitch to Real Muto at all load the bases, and make the Phillies have to pinch hit for their reliever. And what they wound up doing is he, they let Alvarado hit for himself because they had now taken the lead, and then he could come back and finish the game. Yeah, I think, look, if you're trying to win the game, you don't worry about the next at-bat. You focus on the at-bat right there. And I think walking Real Muto would have made a lot of sense. So there is so much to this game, as we've been saying. Let's just hit on like the various big items from this game and from this doubleheader. So with Luis Garcia, uh, oh, by the way, it wasn't just this obstruction call in the 10th inning for him in the field in this game two of the doubleheader on Friday night. Luis Garcia in a Phillies three-run third committed a crucial run-scoring throwing error. Uh, He with a runner on second, nobody out, and the game tied at one, fielded a grounder off the bat of Kyle Schwarber, 
uh, while directly behind the second base bag. Garcia gets the ball, looks at the runner as he runs to third base, realizes he's not going to get the guy at third base, and then makes an awful throw to Josh Bell at first base. So the ball hit to Garcia like a rocket. He took a look at third, but then threw wild toward first. The ball actually squirted away from Bell, hit the dugout screen, and Bell had to go all the way past the on-deck circle to chase it down. So Garcia thought about a play at third and then ended up losing the play at first. You know, classic thing of take the out that's there for you instead of trying to get fancy with things. And, you know, we understand what happened. We understand he's a work in progress. But, boy, that was a really bad defensive moment for Luis Garcia. He ends up having two costly defensive moments in this game. Now, the second one, I don't put on him. But that first one, you certainly put on him. He can't make that throwing error right there. Yeah, no, 100%. And it's overthinking, trying to do too much. There was never going to be a play at third there. Just focus on getting the easy out, especially someone in his situation that they're working so hard with on getting the fundamentals down and making the routine plays. Don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. Do your mechanics, your footwork, everything that you've been working on to just make the simple play. Now, he still had plenty of time, even with the looking at the runner, there was plenty of time for him to set himself and make a good throw, and he didn't. And what you see with him a lot is he kind of drops his arm down and he's kind of throwing it more sidearm than over the top. And that makes the ball tail on him. And you saw it's exactly what it did. What we are seeing is pretty much exactly what we had heard all along. And this is why they were so reluctant to call him up. It's not just about errors, but about a lack of awareness and fundamentals and just not a clean brand of defensive baseball from somebody who you're now asking to be a big league shortstop. And so they're going to live with it. For now, he's here, and he's hitting really well, so they're going to keep him in the lineup. They're going to live with this. You just hope that he learns from these mistakes and gets better. I don't know if he will or not, but they want to give him his opportunity to do that. And I'm reminded of, because I saw him today here, uh, he's here all weekend for the Zimmerman celebration, Ian Desmond. When he first came up, had a terrible reputation as a fielder. As a shortstop, there was some thought maybe he's going to have to move to a different position. I think Jim Regalman even tried him in the outfield at one point early in his career. He stuck with it. He got a lot better to the point that he was a you know solid big league shortstop. He made his errors, but he was not causing all kinds of chaos with poor fundamentals and, and botching routine plays all the time. Maybe that's who Luis Garcia can become. But he's going to have to learn all that. And in the meantime, they're going to have to live with these kind of mistakes. Yeah. And you also wonder, too, if maybe he's just a major league second baseman, you know, and right now he's being uh, denied there by Cesar Hernandez. But Cesar Hernandez isn't going to be here next season. So maybe that's just the play. But, you know, for now, in this season, give Garcia a shot at shortstop, see what he can do. He is hitting, though. He had two hits in each game in this doubleheader. And this has been really good to see. Luis Garcia was an underwhelming offensive presence in his previous stints at the major league level. He has been a different hitter in this go-round. He in game one of the doubleheader, two for four with two singles. He in game two of the doubleheader on Friday night, two for five with an RBI double and a single. I mean, the guy has been very consistent. You know, Davey Martinez continues to bat him for the most part, number seven, maybe number six, sometimes number eight. I think at some point you have to wonder, maybe Luis Garcia, it's time for him to be moved up into the lineup. Davey's been tinkering with his lineups lately. He's not doing the same lineups game in, game out. We're seeing a lot of different things here. And Luis Garcia is hitting. His OPS is at 850 in this latest go-round at the Major League level. He already now has nearly as many hits as Alcides Escobar had had the entire season. And Garcia has played in less than half the games that Escobar has played in. Not that Escobar is the standard by which all shortstops should be judged, but just to give you an idea of like how good offensively Luis Garcia has been. So was well, good to see that. Treat the whole family to a fun night of baseball with the Bethesda Big Train at Shirley Povich Field. Big Train Baseball is the perfect mix of small town charm and big league talent right here in Bethesda's Cabin John Regional Park. Visit BigTrain.org forward slash tickets to reserve your seats for tonight's game and all other home games throughout July. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 1-0 pitch. Blasted to right center field. Herrera chasing back. Bell may have another one, and he does. It is gone over the National League out-of-town scoreboard. Josh Bell is scorching hot. He's homered twice here in this game, three times in the doubleheader. That's home run number 11, and this game is tied. Nobody was better offensively for the Nets in this doubleheader than Josh Bell. And if there's such a thing as like going from zero to 100 in terms of how hot you are as a batter, I feel like that's Josh Bell. He had cooled off. And now like out of nowhere, the guy has caught fire. This has been amazing what he's doing in this series. Game one of the series on Thursday night, Josh Bell, two for four, solo homer in a single. Game two of the series, which is game one of the doubleheader, one for three with a two-run homer and a walk. And game three of the series, game two of the doubleheader, Two for three with two home runs in two walks. He has hit four homers over the first three games of this series. He hit three homers over the two games on Friday. The homer in game one, a two-out, two-run opposite field homer to right field to cut the Nats deficit to 5-3 in a two-run six. And then the two-run homers on Friday night uh, in the bottom of the second, a leadoff full-count homer to dead center field for a one nothing Nats lead. Uh, Bell was down in that count at 1.02, worked the count full, then blasted the homer. And then Bell in a two-run fourth, a two-run opposite field homer to right center field to tie the game at three. <laughs> this is remarkable what he's doing. Uh, what a job by Josh Bell so far in this series. Now, wait till you hear this stat. This is from Stats Inc. that came out after the game. You're going to have to process this a little bit. Since the RBI became an official stat in 1920, Josh Bell is the only player in Major League history to hit three or more homers, drive in five or more runs, and draw three or more walks on a single day, and yet not have a victory to show for it. So to do all that he did, all that production, and not come away with at least one win, if that doesn't just encapsulate everything for you right there, that's the one. He was great. He was so good. And it's so nice to see. And as we know, when he gets hot, he gets really hot. And he might go on one of these runs now for weeks. You just wish that it was making a difference in the final outcome. And I know we can say, hey, the outcome doesn't really matter. But they need to win a game or two. I mean, they, they've earned the right to win a game or two with some of the stuff they're doing. But it's great to see him do that after going through that slump. You hope he continues, and it's going to make for a very interesting uh, summer as he compiles his stats and we try to figure out where he's going to be playing come August and September. Oh, yes. August 2nd was winking and nodding at what Josh Bell was doing uh, on Friday. He is the Nats' leader in RBI uh, by far, if you care about RBI. 44 runs batted in for Josh Bell on the season. So one of the Nats' big sluggers, Josh Bell, great day on Friday. But the Nats' top slugger, Juan Soto, bad day on Friday. Uh, Juan Soto is not having a good series. And the, not season-long rut, but boy, at this point, for the majority of the season, he's been in this rut, certainly by his standards, does continue. Soto on Thursday night went 0 for 4. Soto on Friday afternoon in game one of the doubleheader, 0 for 4 with a strikeout. And Soto on Friday night in game two of the doubleheader, 0 for 4 with a walk and a strikeout. Now, he did have a nice outfield assist on Friday night. Top of the fifth, gunned down Kyle Schwarber at second base, and Schwarber's attempt to stretch a leadoff single into a double. So 
I do want to give Soto credit for that. But also for Juan on Friday was him not running out a double play. Uh, Soto in the bottom of the six of game one of the doubleheader grounded into a first pitch 4-6-3 double play on which he did not run all that hard. Now, I think it's worth mentioning that Juan Soto in game one of this series, the Thursday night game, returned from a two-game absence caused by a right knee contusion. So I do wonder if the knee was a factor there. But boy, uh, Davey Martinez in his postgame chat with you guys between the two games on Friday certainly didn't seem to think that the knee excused Soto's effort in running out that double play and basically called out Juan Soto for not running balls out. And, you know, it's funny, right? Nats are facing the Phillies. They have Bryce Harper. We remember the conversations years ago of Bryce not running out balls hard and, you know, to what extent should he be criticized for that? But how about that? Not just what Soto did or didn't do, but that Davey was pretty, I thought, forceful with you guys in attacking Soto uh, in that postgame press conference after game one of the doubleheader. He was. Now, he didn't bring it up. It was asked of him, but he answered honestly and said that, I think it was, I don't care for that. He said, I know his knee's been bothering him, but we just ask you to play with 100% effort. And I think it was appropriate. I think it was an appropriate time to do that, if if you're ever going to do it out loud. Now, he said he had already talked to him about it. It sounds like it's not the first time that maybe he's brought it up with him before. And Juan you know, talked around it a little at first. He did mention the knee, but then you know he said, I'm not going to make excuses. I need to be better than that. And look, I think there's an understanding that Juan Soto, if he is the face of this franchise now, which he is, the leader of a team, that you set an example for everyone else with the way that you play. And it's notable that Davey Martinez has mentioned more than once this year about how hard Nelson Cruz always runs every ground ball, runs the bases hard. Um, Josh Bell, same thing. Guys we don't think of as being particularly fast runners, but they always run out every play. And I don't think this is a recurring issue for Juan, maybe the way that we thought it was with Bryce back in the day. I don't think I see a lot of this from him. But it was notable that he didn't run that one all the way out and it's not a good look. It was addressed with him. He, you know, acknowledged it and said he needs to be better. He doesn't look right right now. And I'm not talking about the knee. I'm saying as a player, he doesn't look right right now. He is still trying to figure things out at the plate. He hasn't looked great in the field though. Like you said, I I like the play that he made. He made a nice throw to second base. But he seems like a guy who is struggling to an extent that he hasn't in the past on a team that is losing way more than any other team he's ever been on. And he's still trying to figure out how to get through all that. And you can kind of understand why he may be feeling this way. Long day of baseball, terrible week of baseball. But when you're Juan Soto, there's going to be more of a spotlight on you. You are the leader of a team and you lead by example. And he didn't do it, at least in that instance. Tweet from Michael Fitz. Are you guys going to talk about how Juan Soto's batting average is 216? I know y'all don't think it's the most important stat, but he's not even close to the top of any major batting stat. Well, that's that's not exactly true. He's close to the top, uh, if not at the top, in terms of walks, and his on-base percentage is good. But yes, uh, his batting average is 216, and that is that really slaps you across the face when you look at Juan Soto's numbers, even if you don't value batting average that much, which I personally do not, you still, you see that. You're like, wow, 216, really? Yeah, that's what Juan Soto's hitting this season, 216. Now, he's got a 364 on base, but his slugging is only 432. That power isn't where it should be. Juan Soto should be a 300, 400, 500 guy. Like, his talent screams that, and he hasn't been close to that so far this year. And, um, you know, I, I again, like, I don't, I don't want to bash him too much for the not running out the double play thing because, again, he's coming off this right knee contusion. And I, I think sometimes people can overvalue, like, did you run as hard as you could on that play? But I, what I think is notable is that Davey made it a point when he got asked about it to say what he said. Davey didn't downplay it. Davey didn't poo-poo it. Like, Davey said, yeah, you know what? That is kind of a thing. And I talked to him about that. And I think that that's telling. If it's standing out to Davey, I think that's significant because it's probably standing out to other people as well. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that he could have played it off or, or just said, you know, um, well, you know, he's banged up right now. Uh, you know, we talk about these things with him. I'm not I'm not worried about him, anything like that, even though behind the scenes, maybe he did chew him out. So, yeah, he could have played it that way. He chose not to. I don't think it's a problem for him to do that. I think maybe he's trying to light a little fire under a guy who just doesn't look like himself right now. I don't know. Or maybe that's just Davey at the uh, nearing the end of a really long and difficult week in which so many things have gone wrong. 
actually coming out and you know admitting something publicly that he wouldn't have otherwise and letting the frustration get to him. So there could be some of that as well. It was notable. You know, it's not something we hear a lot, certainly from Davey Martinez. It's not something you often hear said publicly, but I don't necessarily think it was inaccurate. One other thing just about Soto, he has hit 13 homers, uh, which is tied for 20th in the majors. Um, so there's a little bit of that, but what he's not doing is just hitting the ball with the same authority and consistency that we know from him and certainly not hitting the singles that we're used to from him. So no, I mean, he, he he's not right. He, he doesn't look like himself. Every once in a while you say, oh, well, okay, he's had a couple good at-bats, maybe he's figuring it out. And he doesn't quite get back to uh, to that, and he kind of falls back into these bad habits and things. And he's searching for it in a way that he has not before. And we're, you know, not quite there yet, but we're approaching the midpoint of the season, and that's troubling. Again, I'm not super worried in the long run that Juan Soto isn't going to figure it out, but right now, you know, through 68 games, he is not the Juan Soto that we all know and expect him to be. No, he is not. Uh, his WAR entering games on Friday, 2.1 on the year, which is, you know, not bad for this point of the season, but it's not superstar level. Like you, you want to see Juan Soto playing at that MVP level that we know he can be at. And he hasn't been that uh, so far on the year. All right. So the Nats pitching, uh, this has been the biggest issue for the Nats lately, just in terms of like availability. You could argue the offense has been a bigger problem lately than people maybe want to talk about, but the pitching has been the thing that has had the Nats feeling like they're underwater for days now just because of what happened on Monday night with the rain delay and Josiah Gray and the Steven Strasburg injury and just the fact that the pitching isn't very good to begin with. So the two starting pitchers for the Nats in this doubleheader sweep to the Phillies on Friday, Joanna Doan in game one, Paolo Espino in game two. I thought all things considered, you got more or less what you wanted to get from these guys. Now, the bar is so low right now, okay? So it's kind of pathetic that we're going to say what we're saying here. But Yohan Adone in game one. Remember, Yohan Adone was sent down to AAA Rochester now uh, a little more than a week ago, June 8th. He, over his first 12 starts at the major league level this season, ERA is 695. So, you know, the expectations were low for him on Friday afternoon. He ended up allowing four runs in five innings. Uh, He gave up seven hits, four doubles, and three singles. But he did have six strikeouts versus one walk. He did last for five innings, which these days for a Nats starting pitcher is like going nine, okay? That's like LeVon Hernandez now if you last five innings in an outing as an Nats starting pitcher. And he threw strikes, 64 strikes versus 33 balls over 97 pitches. Paolo Espino in game two, uh, same kind of a thing. In fact, he was a little better than Adone was. Three runs, two earned in five innings. Uh, only gave up three hits, a homer and two singles. Did issue four walks into wild pitch. We're not used to seeing Paolo uh, struggle with his control as he did on Friday night. But he also had five strikeouts. Uh, he threw 89 pitches over five innings. So again, low bar. Again, Nats are reeling right now from a starting pitching standpoint especially. But at least you didn't get total disasters from these guys. You didn't get, say, what you got from our friend Patrick Corbin, okay, with him not even lasting four innings. You didn't get what we got from, say, our friend Eric Fetty, who threw about a 1,000 pitches in five innings and change. You got from Adone and Espino, I think, more or less what you realistically could have expected to get. Yeah, look, during the first or the previous five games, all of them losses, uh, they were averaging fewer than four innings per start. So that's a very low standard Obviously not going to get it done, and both these guys completed five. So, yeah, I think it was a success in that regard. Adone, it didn't start off well. 33 pitches in the first and then gave up two runs. Another couple of runs in the third. He looks like he's in trouble, but to his credit, he retired the last seven batters he faced. Uh, I thought there was some improvement. I think they were encouraged by the strike throwing, by his ability to use his changeup, which, which was a major point of emphasis for him when they sent him down. Um this is a one-and-done thing. He's going back. This wasn't like an audition for him to stay in the rotation. They needed a starter for this game. He's going back down. But if he does the things that they want him to do, uh, I think we are going to see him again. And, and as awful as the big-picture numbers are, when he's, he's lost 11 games. And I know we don't care about pitchers' wins and losses, Al. But he's lost 11 games. You know the New York Yankees have lost 16 games as a team this year? Yohan Adon has already lost 11 himself. He needs to work on things. But... There have been some encouraging signs, I think. There's something there. You can tell There's this is an intriguing enough young pitcher to say that you want him to go down, get the seasoning that he probably should have had all along, and then maybe give him a chance later on to see what he can do. So 
he did, you know, fine. They would have liked to give up a few less runs, but in the you know grand scheme of things, he did fine. Paolo did fine as well, about what you expected. The walks, I think, were the most troubling thing because that's not who he is. And he started off the game, you know, what was it, back-to-back walks to open the game. That's not Paolo Espino at all. But again, fine, gave them a chance, gave them the five innings. I do think, I mean, we're going to see, they have to reshuffle a lot of stuff next week uh, with the off days and figure out what their rotation is going to be moving forward. I think he's going to stay in the rotation. I do think they look at this point as if we can get five or maybe even six innings every five nights from him because he'll be stretched out at that point, that is more effective and that's helping us more than putting some of these other guys out there, especially some of the less experienced ones. So we may see Paolo Spino go from being the guy who could only pitch in low leverage spots to now having the responsibility of being one of their five starters for the foreseeable future. Well, good. I mean, I think there's actually a pretty compelling case for Paolo to be in the rotation at this point. By the way, shout out to one of the many listeners of the Nats Chat podcast. Uh, He goes by the name on Twitter, Official Travis Granholm stand account. He proudly wore his Paolo Espino secret weapon Nats Chat podcast t-shirt on Friday at Nationals Park. So we certainly appreciate that. We tweeted out the photo. You can check it out by going to our Twitter account at Nats underscore chat. So, uh, oh, with a don. So just to back up what you were saying, I think it's telling, you know, the Nats did not like recall him from AAA Rochester. He was appointed as the 27th man for the doubleheader, which tells you this was a one and done scenario. I hope with him, this doesn't become an Eric Fetty situation, though, where he's up and down and up and down. Let him stay in the minors, let him work on his craft, and then call him up. I'm not saying you got to give him the Kate Cavalli treatment and, like, you know, treat him with, with you know, precious gloves. But I, I don't like this when guys go up and down and up and down. Let him stay down there, work on what he's got to work on, and then eventually, maybe later this season, maybe next season, we see him starting at the major league level on a regular basis. And I think that is their intention. Um, I think when they sent him down, the idea was let's let him go down for you know a month, work on these things, and then come back. The only reason in this case was because of the pitching fiasco that they were in, given everything that's happened this week, and they needed somebody, and he was on turn. So yeah, I, he's going to be down there for a while, I think, as he works on things before he comes back up. All right, Nats bullpen in this doubleheader on Friday. So the Nats made a move on Friday morning, recalled reliever Corey Abbott from AAA Rochester, optioned Andres Machado to Rochester. Speaking of going up and down, up and down, how many times has Machado been up and down this season between uh, the Nationals and Rochester? It feels like about a a million times already. Uh, So anyway, in game one of the doubleheader, you had four Nats relievers combining to allow one run unearned in four innings. I think the two interesting performances in game one So Evan Lee, Evan Lee faced eight batters. He got three outs. He allowed the other five batters to reach base, including issuing four walks and two wild pitches. I don't know if he complained about anything being physically wrong, but the Nats actually had him undergo x-rays and were to have him undergo an MRI exam just to make sure he was okay. It sounded like like Davey Martinez and others were thinking his control was so bad we have to make sure nothing's wrong, that, that it felt like something might be wrong. Do you know, did he complain of something or did they just do this do this testing because his control was so off in this outing? Uh, it may be a little of both. I didn't see him call for them or anything like that. Um, so maybe they just saw the way some of those pitches went. I mean, they were, there were some really bad pitches within that sequence there. It was awful. I, I don't know if I've ever seen anything quite like that. And so they said, well, something must be wrong with him. But I mean, they had a discussion with him. He could have stayed in the game if he convinced them that he felt all right. So maybe he did acknowledge that something wasn't 100% right. And they immediately went to look at his shoulder. So they had reason to believe that that's where it was. I I actually thought watching it live, it seemed like he was playing with his hand, like maybe there was a finger or a blister, or, you know, something like that. But no, it, it's his shoulder that they're looking at. Um, we'll see. Uh, hopefully we know more the next day or two on that. But, you know, it's, it's a tough spot. Here's a kid who came up from double A who has been a starter. Um, they're trying him out in the bullpen here. Now, they're keeping him on kind of a starter schedule. I think he's basically gone every five days just in relief, but it's all new to him. And so it may be asking a lot of him, and this is what you do worry about, is could that kind of unusual workload and the pressure being the big leagues cause any physical problems? You hope it did not. Uh, hopefully everything's going to be fine here, but that would be really unfortunate if he got hurt as a result of the way he's being used here in you know, kind of an unconventional way, at least by uh, his standards of what he's learned how to do so far as a professional. 
The other notable relief pitcher performance in game one, and this actually takes us into game two, is Carl Edwards Jr. What a job by Edwards in game one. He comes into the game, top of the seventh, runners at the corners, begins his outing by issuing a four-pitch walk at D.D. Gregorius to walk the bases loaded. So that was bad. But Edwards then recorded three consecutive strikeouts, and each strikeout came on a called strike three. I mean, that was a spectacular performance by Edwards in the top of the seventh in game one. And then he, in game two, tossed a perfect top of the seventh. So, wow. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Nobody had a better Friday on the Nats than Josh Bell. But might I suggest that Coral Edwards Jr. was number two. That was some performance by him over those two games. Now the 0-2 pitch. Fastball. Strike three called. Outside corner. Ring him up. The Nationals walk the bases loaded and then strike out the side looking. Yeah, I don't know. Again, I don't know if I've ever seen anything quite like that. He and Evan Lee together had thrown 13 consecutive balls and two wild pitches. And then they got out of it. Nobody scored after all that. Nobody even put a ball in play after all that. Crazy. And then comes back to pitching the nightcap. So it was 30 total pitches for him over the two games. Now, he was able to do it. Kyle Finnegan, not so good pitching both ends of the doubleheader. And Tanner Rainey, I know he didn't actually pitch in the opener, but he warmed up twice because there was a chance of them rallying to either tie or take the lead. He warmed up twice, wasn't used, and then pitched in the nightcap and gave up the critical tying run. So it's a tough spot to ask guys to pitch in both ends of a doubleheader. Carl Edwards Jr., bravo to him for pulling it off. Finnegan and Rainey, not so much. Yeah, and that's the thing. Your top two relievers failed you in game two. And I know that there are maybe some explanations for why, but Finnegan in the top of the eighth was not good. Two runs, got just two outs, gave up that two-out pinch, two-run double to Bryce Harper to tie the game at five. And just one pitch after what should have been ball four was called strike one. It's so funny. You know, there's a saying in basketball, ball don't lie. You almost had that here in baseball where, like, the guy who got jobbed, Harper, ended up getting his by lacing that two-run double But Finnegan in that top of the eighth in game two, 22 pitches, 12 strikes versus 10 balls. That's not Kyle Finnegan. That's not who we know. And then Tanner Rainey, who's been kind of spotty lately. Look, he did have three strikeouts, and he had a big strikeout to get the third out in the uh, the eighth inning. Struck out Alec Bohm. But the home run by Veerling to uh, to put the Phillies up 6-5 in that ninth inning. So another shaky outing for Rainey. And then uh, Steve Ciszek in the top of the tenth allowed two runs one earned. Uh, there's one other thing from Friday I want to make mention of regarding the Nats. The Los Angeles Angels on Friday afternoon announced that Anthony Rendon is going to be undergoing season-ending right wrist surgery. So Anthony Rendon's season is done. Uh, this is year three for Anthony Rendon of his seven-year $245 million contract. It's odd. Rendon and Steven Strasburg, the two big free agents coming off the Nats 2019 World Series Championship. Each guy got the same deal, 70 years, 245. And each guy has been plagued big time by injury. Understand this now about Anthony Rendon. At the end of this season, he will have played in just 155 of a possible 384 regular season games for the Angels. That works out to 40.4% of the Angels' regular season games over his first three seasons with the team. This contract right now with the Angels is an absolute failure, okay? Now, maybe it changes, all right? And everyone knows Anthony Rendon's a good player. Although, if you look at his numbers with the Angels, they're good but not great. He was a much better player with the Nets. But to the people who say, man, they should have re-signed Rendon, or the reason that Nats are in this predicament is because they've let too many of their guys go. No. Look at the big-name guys who the Nats have allowed to leave via free agency. Look at the big-name guys who've signed big-money contracts in leaving the Nats via free agency. Rendon, Jordan Zimmerman, you know, Ian Desmond you can bring up. If you want to argue Bryce Harper, maybe. Okay, that's a to-be-determined. But what is happening with Anthony Rendon should not go unnoticed by the Nats fan. The Nats made the right call in not re-signing him. Ask the Angels right now how they feel about this contract. 40.4% of the games over the first three seasons. And he's getting older. You think he's going to become super durable over the remaining four years of this contract? You know, he missed a good amount of time with the Nats due to injury. And we're seeing this play out now with the Angels. And, you know, not to uh, not to beat up on the guy, okay, because everyone likes him. But 
I, I think that that's a significant thing on your Nats Friday, that Anthony Rendon is out for the rest of this year. And so far, his contract with the Angels looks like a big time whiff by the Angels. And I think it's also notable that the injuries uh, last year was a hip. This time it's a wrist. These are significant things that like he's got like he described it like a brand new hip. He didn't get a hip replacement, anything like that. But it was a significant injury there. And a wrist is something that especially for him, think how quick his hands are as a hitter. That's what made him such a great hitter. So these are things that it's not like, well, once it's healed, he's going to be right back to who he was. These are things that are probably going to hamper him for the rest of his career, or he's just not going to be the same as he was. So, yeah, I do have concerns about how he comes back from all this. And can he be that elite player that we saw here for so many years that was so good at everything in the game? I've made this point before. I want to make it again because I get it all the time. Anytime I reference something about Strasburg in particular and his latest injuries and everything else. And I get responses from people who say, boy, the Nats really blew it by choosing Strasburg instead of Rendon. And I've said this before, but I want to say it again. The Nationals did not choose to sign Strasburg and choose not to sign Rendon. Strasburg chose to re-sign with the Nationals. Rendon chose not to come back and to go to the Angels. I really do believe this had more to do with the players' wishes than the Nationals' wishes. They made an offer to Rendon. He didn't like the offer. Strasburg was willing to take deferred money. Rendon was not. Now, would that have alone been enough if it was straight up the money without the deferrals? Would he have taken it? I don't know. I've always suspected that Anthony Rendon really did want to go somewhere else uh, and had for a little while. And his comments since and just the way he's acted about it leads me to believe that that is what he wanted as opposed to Strasburg. And it's so funny to think about the West Coast kid who everybody thought would want to go home and didn't like the East Coast, didn't like the humidity, he wanted to stay here. He was comfortable here. So I never viewed this as the Nationals picking one over the other. I viewed it as the players deciding where they wanted to be. Strasburg wanted to be here. Rendon did not. Yeah, I think that sentiment comes from an interview Mark Lerner did around that time saying, essentially, we can't afford to keep both guys. And it came across like we're going to have to pick one. It certainly set the table for we can't keep both. But looking back on it now, it's as clear as can be. The right play was to not resign any of them. That I mean, that's what should have happened. OK, now it's a hindsight take, obviously. But looking back on it right now, knowing what we know, the Nats should have let both guys go. Okay, so it's just it's it's an I think it's an important lesson to learn if you're a baseball fan, and th- this narrative that people will still put out there of oh you see they let Rendon go and look at where they are now no 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 this is that's not why why they are where they are you can have problems with how they've replaced Anthony Rendon but letting him go is right now looks like to be a hundred percent the right call and ask the Angels right now ask Artie Moreno right now how he feels about that Rendon contract and by the way. How many bad contracts have the Angels signed over the years? Pujols, Josh Hamilton, Rendon. There are about like 10 others we could list. It's uh, it's pretty remarkable. Well, uh, it was really cool seeing all of the former Nationals at Nationals Park on Friday. Uh, you know, Jason Wirth, Danny Espinosa, Lance Nix, Adam LaRoche. Adam LaRoche is a grandfather. We found that out on Friday. You want to feel old, man. That's crazy. And uh, Saturday sets up to be such a special day. I know the uh, the gates are opening, what, at 2 p.m. on Saturday for fans to get there for the uh, Ryan Zimmerman number 11 retirement ceremony? Yeah, they kept bumping it up uh, to make sure that everyone has a chance to get in. I was expecting a lot of traffic in the area, other things going on around town. They're opening gates at 2. The ceremony is supposed to start at 310. Uh, so if you are coming, try to get here. Expect traffic. Expect it to take a while. Try to get in early. I've been told that it's going to be a very cool ceremony. They put a lot of time and effort into this. Um, it's going to be a long ceremony. You can see the game starts at 435 and they're starting this thing at 310. It's going to be, a, there's a lot to it, but I've been told uh, a lot of people are participating, not just in person, but a lot of video tributes uh, and some surprises to it. And I think it's going to be an emotional day. And I, I think they realize you only get one shot to do this. You know, this is the first number retirement you have, and it's the face of the franchise, the guy who was there from the beginning. You only get one crack at this. You better do it right. And I think everything that I sense is that they have put a lot of time and effort and thought into this. They want to do it right. So make sure you're there. If you aren't coming to the game, 
put on Masson. We're going to have the entire thing on the air, you know, expanded pregame show. They're going to show the entire ceremony. Uh, it really should be a special day at the ballpark. There is a therapeutic nature to this, too, because of what is happening with the Nats right now. Not just the state of the team, but actually like right now, seven-game losing streak, You know, 11-game losing streak to the Phillies. To have something like this, a feel-good occurrence, to have all these names from the past show up and remind you of the good old days, I actually think this is very needed right now for Nationals fans, and it's nice to have this. I know watching guys, like just seeing Espinosa, I don't know, it like made me feel good on Friday. I was like, wow, it's nice to see him. It's nice to be reminded of a time not that long ago uh, when things were different with this team. Nice to see him not swinging from the left side of the plate, though. Just talking about the good old days, <laughs> because he could drive you mad about as 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 much as anybody they've ever had. Uh, you talk about great defensive players who you just wish could hit a little bit. He never was able to figure it out. I liked the guy a lot, but boy was he stubborn and would not take instruction, and never did become just a halfway decent hitter. Because I always thought he could have been a very good player because his defense was that good. Yeah, Danny Espinosa, Michael A. Taylor, Victor Robles, if they were as good offensively as they were slash or defensively, they'd be like Hall of Fame players. We want to uh, solicit from you Ryan Zimmerman memories, Ryan Zimmerman thoughts. Send us voice memos. We'll be playing them uh, at the conclusions of installments of the Nat Chat podcast. You can email us your Ryan Zimmerman voice memos at our email address, Podcast at gmail.com. That's Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. You can tweet us as well at Nats underscore chat. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Now Baez to the belt. Two out. The right-hander kicks, delivers, Zim swings and drives one to deep center field. Way back goes Bellinger.